Good morning. Uh, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We've been looking at John chapter 1 together for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue that here this morning. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So, Father, we turn to Your Word. And we... We want to hear your voice and we want to know your truth. We want you to reveal yourself to us. So Lord, we ask, help us to see this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you know for certain what someone wants for Christmas? There are a couple of different ways you can go about it. I trust that that uh, you guys have your Christmas shopping in a in a good place. Uh, there's two extremes. There's there's a group of people that uh, you started shopping for this year last December. You waited till after Christmas and you got all the deals and then you saved it and remembered where it was. The other extreme, you like to live dangerously and you'll get it done sometime this week when the inspiration hits. Uh, good luck there. But how do you know for sure what somebody wants for Christmas? How do you know? Uh, There's a couple of ways to go about it. You could always guess. You could make some observations, you know, you, you know that person or you know that kind of person or, or maybe you can, you can think of something that you like and apply your preferences to, to them and kind of lay that over them and assume that they'll like what you like. That could 
work out for you, or it, it could not. Another way to go about it is you can ask for a list. Give me, give me a list of the things that you want. I'll pick something off the list, and there you go. You go home. They, they go home uh, undisappointed, right? They, they got what they wanted. That's the, that's the surefire way to send someone home excited about Christmas is, is you selected something off of their list. How do you really know what someone wants for Christmas? You can only know. For sure, if they tell you, if they reveal it to you. In the same way, we can only really know what God is like if he tells us. It's been said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what do you think God is like? And how do you know you're right? I suggest this morning that we can only truly know what God is like if He reveals Himself to us. We can make some observations about nature and, and assume, infer what God is like. And sometimes what people do is, is we assume God is like us. So we lay our preferences and our personality and our tendencies on top of God and assume he's like us. But the only way you can be sure is if he tells you. There's a story in the Bible about a time when God told a person what he is like. And I asked you to turn to John chapter 1 a second ago. I want you to leave your finger there because we're going to come back to it. But go all the way to the left. We're going to go to the book of Exodus 34. Exodus 34, I want you to look at this with me. So, Moses and the people of Israel escape Egypt. They wander through the wilderness and they, they make it to Mount Sinai. They're at the base of the mountain and, and Moses ascends Mount Sinai where he's going to receive the law, the Ten Commandments and some, some other laws, and he's going to receive some instructions to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle, if if God is going to live among the people, they've got to build a temple for God. But the people are wandering through the wilderness. It can't be a permanent structure, so what they build is a, a tabernacle. It, it's a portable temple. It's a tent. So Moses go, goes up the mountain to receive the law, receive these instructions, and there's thunder, and there's smoke, and there's lightning. At the base of the mountain, you have the people of Israel. And they look up and they see the thunder and the smoke and the lightning and Moses is gone for a little while. They're not sure what's happened to this man, Moses. And so what do they do? They fashion a God after their own idea of what God should be like. They make for themselves a, a golden calf. And they hold it up and they say, this is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. And they begin to worship this idol. They guess about what God is like. But up on the mountain, the Lord tells Moses what he is like. He reveals himself to Moses. Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory. And God says, well, I'll show you my glory, kind of. But nobody has, has seen the fullness of my glory and lived. No one has seen my face and live. So I'll kind of show you the afterglow of my glory. So Moses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet you on the mountain. 
And I'm going to show you my glory. And I'm going to proclaim my goodness to you. God is going to describe himself to Moses. So in Exodus chapter 34, in verses 6 and 7, the Lord describes himself to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, um, that, that's Yahweh. He's proclaiming his name there. The, uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. So God reveals himself, he reveals his glory to Moses, and then he proclaims his nature. He says that he is a God who is merciful. That word there is, is uh, he's a God who extends compassion and, and mercy and like the tenderness of a mother towards a wayward child. God tells Moses that he is gracious. That he's kind. That even though the people have sinned, the people at the base of the mountain have sinned. And even though they have sinned, he is uh, still willing to forgive. He is, he favors them. He's gracious. God tells Moses that, that he is slow to anger. The Lord is patient. It takes a long time for his anger to be acted upon. He doesn't quickly lose his temper, nor is he impulsive. Rather, the Lord bears with sinners. He's willing to wait for them to repent. I want you to notice that it doesn't say that the Lord is slow to do anything else. He's not slow to love. He's not slow to be kind. Sometimes God uh, sometimes we think about God that he is is just angry and that he's like on the edge of flying off the handle. He just needs one little nudge and he's just going to lose it. And he's bursting at the seams with anger and it, it doesn't take much for him to go over the top. But God explains himself to Moses and he doesn't say that. He says that he's slow to anger, but he is right on the edge of something. He is about to burst at the seams with something. What is it? He tells us he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's slow to anger, but he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, that word, it's, a lo- it's loving loyalty. Or maybe your Bible translation says something like loving kindness. That word is translated all different ways. Grace, mercy, Kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love. It's God's loving loyalty. And that word faithfulness is a word that means that he's true to his word. As as a matter of fact, sometimes that word is translated true, truthful. So he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. That's the essence of his being. And that that character causes him to act in certain ways. It means that he's eager to forgive. He wants to. You don't have to talk him into it. He wants to forgive. And also, make no mistake, it says that he's just. He's not going to let sin just slide 
So altogether, these words reveal to us a God that is deeply committed to his people, even in the midst of their sin, even even their sin at the base of the mountain, that God loves his people and he will be good towards them. So Moses receives this information. He descends the mountain and his face is glowing. And the people can tell Moses has been with the Lord. We can't know what God is like unless he reveals it to us. Unless he shows us, unless he tells us that God told Moses what he was like. And then we get to the New Testament. And God, God further reveals what he is like. So back to John chapter 1. We've been looking at this text and, and John says in the beginning was the Word and, and we know what he's explaining there is that there's this person and we're going to, we're just for the time being, called, we're just going to call him the Word. And this person that I'm talking about is not only in the beginning and not only was he with God, but actually he was God and he created everything that exists. He created it. The Word. And we get down to verse 14. We're going to spend the rest of our time in verses 14 through 18. And what we're going to discover is that Jesus explains the Father to us. Jesus explains the Father to us. Down in verse 18, it says that no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. That was made clear to us in Exodus Moses is not allowed to see God's face. No one has ever seen God and lived. Moses saw the afterglow of God's glory, and that was plenty. No one has ever seen God and lived. But then in verse 18, it says, Jesus has made him known. Jesus has made him known. Made him known. That Word in the original language is where we get our word exegete from. Now, you're probably not using that word exegete in your normal language, but uh, when you talk about uh, a preacher, we'll, we'll use that word a lot, exegesis. What I'm doing right now is I'm exegeting this passage for you. I'm, I'm holding this passage before you. I'm, I'm reading it to you, and then I'm explaining it. I'm telling you what it means. That's what it means to exegete something. In this way, Jesus exegetes the Father for us. He exegetes the Father. He explains the Father. That, that word is also used in the sense of, like in the book of Acts, if, if something happens over here, like there's an inner story that happens, somebody who was there, who saw what happened, comes over here and tells somebody who wasn't there what happens. They, they relate the story to them. Story. So in that way, Jesus narrates the Father. For us. Jesus explains the Father. We can know what the Father is done, Jesus. That's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews one uh, chapter one, verses one and two says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. You see, we can't know what God is like unless He reveals Himself. To us, And how has God revealed himself to us? John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, indeed Colossians chapter 1, explains to us that God has revealed himself to us through his Son, 
Jesus explains the Father to us. And the way John chapter 1 is really working out is in verse 18, it says that he has made him known. And the question that we would ask then is, then how does Jesus explain the Father to us? What is it that he explains about him to us? And what you're meant to do as a reader is to keep reading. It's the Gospel of John that tells you what the Father is like. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 12, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Jesus explains the Father. And we're going to look at this text in a little bit more detail. And we're going to see in particular in these verses, Jesus explains the Father um, in a couple of different ways. The first way is this. Jesus explains the presence of God with us. Jesus explains the presence of God with us. In verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if you uh, were really good at reading Greek, or maybe that was your native language, the word dwell, that he dwelt among us, that would jump off the page at you. Because if you if you regularly read the Greek Old Testament, and you regularly read this Greek New Testament, this word would jump off the page because that word dwell is the word tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Just as the Lord tabernacled among his people to be near his people, so too did Jesus take up residence among us when he became a human. I love the way that the message commentary says it, that God moved into the neighborhood. God moved into the neighborhood. In the wilderness, the Lord dwelled with his people. He did. He dwelled among his people, but but his presence was veiled. It was different. So inside the Holy of Holies, there was a box called the Ark of the Covenant. That box is about like that, about that big. Kind of small. That's probably maybe not what you were thinking, but it's it's not that big. And on top of this box, there's some some cherubim, some angels that are kind of facing each other. And and so the way that they understood God's presence is the the Ark of the Covenant was God's footstool. And there above the angels was the throne of the Lord, and, and he was seated on this throne, and his feet rested. His invisible presence was there in the Holy of Holies, seated on his throne. And that, that ark was, was in a room, a small room, sectioned off by a curtain. One guy could go in there one time a year, and he had to do it just right. Well, that room was inside a larger room that was also sectioned off that only certain people could enter that room in a certain way. And that room was inside a larger room that was also sectioned off so that only certain people could come into that room in a certain way. God's presence was restricted. It was like a gated community inside a gated community inside a gated community. Only certain people could come in there and they had to have uh, the right access code, you know? God did dwell with his people, but it was veiled. Kind of in the way that Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 57, verse 15. He says, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That one, he says, 
I dwell in a high, holy place. Not with you. Yet. That's the description that we have about God in the Old Testament. God dwells with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to. And that, that's the reason for the book of Leviticus. Did you know that? Many of you are going to start a Bible reading uh, program, and you're going to get to Leviticus, and you're going to be like, what am I reading? Uh, can I skip this? Is anybody looking? I'll just pretend like I read it. And you don't know what you're reading, and, and, and it's hard. It really is hard. But the purpose of the book, God loves his people, and he wants to be in their presence. But he is holy. And his people are not holy. And so if they approach him, his holiness is going to strike them dead. So in order for him to dwell among his people, there are these rules and these regulations to make it so that the people can deal with their sin, they can deal with their uncleanness before they come into the presence of God. God did dwell with his people, but he was in a gated community. Then we get to John's gospel, and John proclaims something amazing. He proclaims something audacious. He proclaims something that really, if you think about it, doesn't really even make sense. It's not that it's irrational. It's that it's super irrational. It's above our understanding that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The, the God who is high and lofty, the guy who the, the God who lives in a high and holy place. The God whose holiness threatens to kill anybody who comes close in an inappropriate way. The one whose face no one had ever seen, and if they did, they would die. That God, that wild God, that cannot be tamed by us, that God dwelled among us but not in the same way that he did in the Exodus. He wasn't veiled off in this private room. He took on flesh. Flesh and blood. And so John says that the God who thundered at Mount Sinai took on flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says something Maybe even more audacious. He says in verse 14, we have seen his glory. Only Moses, only Moses saw God's glory. And now John says, we have seen his glory. When he says we, John means um, himself and the other apostles. John and his friends, we have seen his glory in um, John's first letter. So you have the Gospel of John, and then towards the end of the New Testament, you have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Those are the same John. Those are his letters. So in his first letter, he says, uh, I'm proclaiming this to you. Here's, Here's what I'm proclaiming to you, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. In other words, John says, we heard his voice. We knew like the register of his voice. You ever think about that? What did his voice sound like? John says, we knew it. And we laughed with him. 
We knew what his laugh sounded like. We, we hugged him. We ate with him. We experienced joy with him. We experienced sorrow with him. We looked him in the eye. We knew his name. You know, the only reason you know the name of Jesus is because somebody else told you it. They knew his name was Jesus because he told them. They knew his name and he knew their names. John says we were friends with him. This Jesus, the Son of God who dwelled among us, we saw his glory. I want you to notice here that not everyone saw his glory. There were many who saw him pass by. There, there were many who saw the miracles of Jesus. There were many who heard his voice and knew what it sounded like. There were many, but not all of them saw his glory. Not all of them beheld his glory. In verse 11, we read it a second ago, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Oh, they saw, but they didn't see. You know what I mean? They saw, but they didn't behold his glory. There is a danger of being so familiar with Jesus, but you don't know him. You know all the stories. You know how to play church and put that smile on. You you know how to be a Bible Belt Christian and what to say and what not to say and and. When to say what? You, you know how to play that game. But you don't actually behold the wonder of the glory of the Son of God. How do you know? How do you know if you're beholding His glory? How do you know if you've seen Him? You know, verse 11 says that there were many His own. Who did not receive him, but verse 12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do you know that you've received him if you've believed in his name? Not believed that he exists, but believed him. Believed him, that you've placed your trust in Jesus, that you've made Jesus your hope, that you've prized Jesus above all other things. That as Jesus has been revealed to us in the scriptures, that, that after you've seen that, you have arranged your life based on that. You have, you have surrendered your allegiance to Jesus. If that's you, then, then it says that God has given you the right to become children of God. You have seen His glory. God could have stayed far off. He could have remained veiled. He could have kept us at arm's length. He could have snapped his fingers and fixed the sin problem if he wanted to. He could have just spoken a word, but he didn't. He took on flesh and he took up residence among us. In this way, Jesus explains Emmanuel. We sang that a second ago. That's Hebrew. You were singing Hebrew and you didn't know it. It means God with us. God with us. Jesus explains God's presence with us. The second way that Jesus explains the Father, He explains the character of God toward us. The character of God towards us in verse 14. At the end of verse 14, it says that, that we have seen His glory, and this glory is full of grace and truth. 
And then skip to verse 16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses ascended the mountain. And he saw God's glory. What did he hear? God proclaimed his goodness to Moses. He proclaimed that he was abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Then, then John, he, he knows Jesus and he looks, he looks Jesus in the eye and he sees Jesus' glory. And how does he describe it? Full of grace and truth. The Lord says, uh, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. John says, full of grace and truth. Grace and steadfast love are essentially the same word. And then I already told you that faithfulness could also be translated truth. What's being said here is, John says, the same thing that Moses saw up on the mountain, we saw that in Jesus. We saw the same thing Moses saw. Grace. What's grace? It's favor. Love. Preference. Goodness towards you. Choosing you. And his choice to set his love on you is a choice that cannot be revoked. When and if Santa Claus comes to your house, he brings gifts. When God moved into the neighborhood, what did he bring? If you found yourself in God's presence like Moses, or if you found yourself looking into the face, into the eyes of the Son of God, what would you expect to find in him? Some of you might say condemnation. I've failed God so many times. And since God knows what I've done, since God knows what I've thought, since God knows all of the people that I've let down, then condemnation is what I would expect to see in God's face. Like he's, he's had to have enough of me by now. Some of you might say disappointment. If I had the chance to look at God in the face, maybe I would find disappointment. I, I keep Failing, I should be better, or or look at the mess I've made. Or look at the expectations that I've failed to meet. Disappointment is what I think I might find in the face of God. Or maybe some of you might say indifference. I'm nobody. Nobody sees me here. I'm all alone. I, I even came to church and nobody said anything to me. I'm, I'm all by myself. If, if nobody here cares about me, then the God of the universe, who has plenty of other things to be doing, why, why would he care about me? If you could find yourself in the presence of God, what would you expect to find? I have the joy and honor of standing right here and telling you this morning, maybe, maybe you need to hear this this morning, is that what you would find in his face is not condemnation and it's not disappointment and it's not indifference. That's not what you would find. Sometimes we think God is like this angry father 
who's just waiting for us to mess up one more time. And it's going to push him over the edge of, of anger. He's going to fly off the handle and then he'll finally be done with us. But when God describes himself, he describes himself as slow to anger. Now, make no mistake, God is just. He will deal with sin. And there's a warning there. God will punish sinners, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to save sinners. If you could find yourself in the presence of God, what would you expect to find? It isn't condemnation. It isn't disappointment. It isn't indifference. If you could look God in the face, do you know what you would find? You'd find a smile. You'd find preference. You'd find favor and mercy. You would find an eagerness to forgive, not just willingness, an eagerness to forgive. In one word, you'd find grace. You'd find grace. John 1.16, we just looked at it a second ago. Out of the abundance, out of the overflow of the heart of God, from this fullness, from this fullness of, of glory that's full of grace and truth, from the overflow of the heart of God, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Literally, it says Grace instead of grace. Grace in the place of grace. And, and I don't know about you, but that's got me scratching my head. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but the best I can understand is, is kind of like this. Have you ever stood on the seashore and looked out at the ocean? And, and coming at you is a wave. And and you look at that wave, and it rolls in, and you see the white caps, and it rolls in, and it breaks, and then it extinguishes itself at your feet. You see that, that wave kind of be done, and you look up. What do you see? Is the ocean still? It better not be, because if it is, something's wrong. What do you see? Another wave coming in its place. And after that one, what do you see? Another wave coming in its place. Wave after wave after wave. My family, we love to go to the beach in the summertime. We love to do it. And I've had to do this with all of my children and, and uh, you have to remind adults sometimes, even myself, that when you go out into the ocean and, and you, you get a good one right in the face, you know, and you got salt water in your eyes, what, what do you do? You, you turn around, right? You turn around to give yourself a second. But you have to remind, I have to remind my daughter, Clara, she's five. I have to remind her, there's another wave coming, though. You can turn your back if you want to, but, but you're, you might drown because there's another wave coming at your back. You have to turn around. You have to have your eyes out at the ocean. You have to keep your head on a swivel because here they come. One after another, grace upon grace, wave upon wave. You have to keep your eyes forward. Because more grace is coming. That's what the Father is like. 
Jesus explains to us. That is what the Father is like. Jesus explains to us that the Father is with us. God with us. Jesus explains the grace of God for us. He doesn't keep us at arm's length, but he inserted himself into the story as a flesh and blood rescuer. Jesus is the narration of God's grace. Where do you need God's grace today? Look, when good things happen in your life, we need the humility to know it's God's grace, not your skill. It's God's grace in your life. When bad things happen in your life, there is grace to get you through it. There's grace to help you see He's going to turn it for good at some point. We don't have to completely understand it, but He's going to turn it for good. When your health fails, there is grace to sustain you in the moment. When you lose a loved one, there is grace to help you grieve. When you sin against God, there is grace to cover your sin and to draw you back into the family. When you wander from God, there is grace to call you back home. Where do you need grace? Where do you need grace? There is grace upon grace upon grace. There will never be enough of it. Grace upon grace upon grace. I want to invite you this morning to turn your eyes toward the goodness of God. Turn your eyes out at the ocean. Don't don't turn around and look at the shore. Don't don't have your eyes towards the beach. Not towards your circumstances. Not towards your own imagination of what God must be like. Don't turn your eyes towards despair or negativity or ungratefulness or hopelessness. Get your eyes off the beach. Turn your eyes out at the ocean. The vast ocean of the inexhaustible grace of God as revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is grace. Grace upon grace.